What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Luke is gone. I felt it. But it wasn't sadness or pain. It was peace and purpose. I felt it too. Luke's gone. Han's gone. Our childhood is over, Adam. Yeah, tell that to my Poe Dameron action figure. The late Carrie Fisher with Daisy Ridley in that clip from the trailer for Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Episode Nine, we are told, is the end of the Star Wars saga. Well, the end of this Star Wars saga. This week on the show, our review of Skywalker, plus an interview with Uncut Gems directors Josh and Benny Safdie. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Star Wars talk ahead, of course, but also later in the show, we've got the four Golden Brick finalists to announce it's our award for the underseen movie of the year. And you're going to hear my conversation with the always entertaining and insightful Josh and Benny Safdie. They are the co-writers and the directors of the new Uncut Gems, which stars Adam Sandler. First up, though, is The Rise of Skywalker. If it's half as good as Phantom Menace, Adam, you know I'll be a happy boy. How dare you? Passed on all we know. A thousand generations live in you now. But this is your fight. So much strength. Darkness rises. And light to meet it. <laughs> As has been tradition, Adam, with these last couple of Star Wars films, this is a still processing review. We did just come out of the screening of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. So I thought it might be fruitful to do this review by asking a couple of questions that popped into my head fairly soon after the movie ended. So not too long ago. The first question has to do with the fact that Rise of Skywalker, directed by J.J. Abrams from a script he wrote with Chris Terrio, has been touted as the final installment in the nine-film saga that began with 1977 Star Wars. It's certainly a direct conclusion to 2015's The Force Awakens, also from Abrams, and 2017's Ryan Johnson-directed follow-up, The Last Jedi. And so, as the end credits to Rise of Skywalker rolled, I faced the reality that a story I've lived with my whole life, Star Wars was one of the first films I saw in the theater, probably at age six or so, was coming to an end. Something somewhat similar happened earlier this year, though. With April's Avengers Endgame, we got the conclusion to the first phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Adam, we both found Endgame extremely satisfying, even though neither of us have quite the same nostalgic relationship to Marvel Comics as we do to the original Star Wars films. So I want to get your gut reaction and your honest opinion, having just come out of Rise of Skywalker. Which conclusive film did you find more satisfying? Hmm really put me on the spot. First of all, I have to say that it really brings out the dark side rage in me that you put together such an articulate intro with good questions in about 17 minutes. I, I can see the Kylo Ren-esque yeah. drips of sweat yeah. going down your forehead. I feel it. I'm angry right now. There's a lot of rage. That would have taken me about four and a half hours. But, huh, where do I even go with this? Because I think... You don't want to say what you know is true, I think, is the problem. 
that, that is the case. Yeah. But it isn't to say that and I, think I'm I, didn't, with you. I didn't like this movie. I think I'm, I'm favorable on this film. Me too. But I do rate Endgame a little higher. What's really hurting me isn't that I don't want to admit it just because it's blasphemy to Star Wars fans. It's that it feels heretical to me mm-hmm. even to say it. Yeah. That Endgame might have been a better culmination in some ways because I care so much more and have so much more invested in the Star Wars saga. Of course, there are a lot of similarities. And one of the things we talked about during our Endgame review was that I felt as if the Russos did a really good job of balancing the planetary and the personal. That's what it's always been about. And that's what Star Wars has always been about, which is to say, yes, of course, we're invested in whether or not good is going to defeat evil and whether or not the rebels are going to defeat the empire. But we really care about these characters and we want to see their different through lines pay off. I think for the most part, the rise of Skywalker accomplishes the same thing. And we can get into maybe who our MVPs are, whether or not certain characters get as much to do or get as much to their through lines as some of the other characters in this film. But setting aside Marvel and Endgame here completely, I do want to praise the movie and I want to point to one particular scene that had an impact on me that I don't think is probably intended to be one of the more emotional moments in the film. There are definitely three or four scenes that are intended to provoke a strong reaction, especially in people who go all the way back with this series. But you remember when we talked about The Force Awakens, I was a defender of that film and that primary complaint lobbed against it, which was, it's just a new hope. Abrams just basically recycled it. And my argument was, that's kind of the point. These myths, these narratives about good and evil and about heroism, that hero's journey, they're timeless. It wasn't invented in 1977. The faces change, the names change, and especially when you do tie in the fact that the characters are actually related to each other. It made perfect sense to me that we were going to see them trace the steps or sort of follow in the footsteps of their predecessors. That didn't bother me at all. And I guess with that in mind, there's a moment in this film where they have to try to get something out of C-3PO's memory bank, right? And again, I think it's the kind of thing that most viewers might see it just as more of a plot hurdle than anything. It's something that kind of stops their process. They got to go to this planet. They got to find some creature that can properly extract this bit from C-3PO's memory. And it comes up that there is something at stake here, which is if they do it, they're going to get what they want, but they're also going to completely rewrite his memory. He goes back and starts as a fresh droid who thinks he has just been activated. And in that moment, I was thinking about C-3PO, along with R2-D2, even more than Chewbacca, certainly more than any of the other characters that are in that room at that moment, who have all been introduced now as part of this new trilogy. These are the guys who go back to the original series, who have been on all those missions, who have gone through all those (laughs) ups and downs and those battles and those seemingly hopeless moments and then those triumphs. They have the full scope of this story and every detail stored in their memories. And for me, the thought of that being wiped out, of C-3PO losing that and everyone around him then losing that institutional knowledge, if you will, maybe kind of an unromantic way to phrase it, but I felt like that loss was something really important. I do think the movie pauses on it just long enough for us to acknowledge that and try to come to terms with that loss. And I feel like Abrams here probably set out in some way on a mission to make sure that this final chapter in the saga does completely come full circle 
that rewards our investment in these characters, that makes it all seem like it wasn't for nothing, all these decades of our interest in these characters. And that line, all for nothing, is one that comes up again and again in the film. The scene with C-3PO is incredibly moving. And for me, also, one of the highlights of the picture, probably, it involves, we should say, an element of sacrifice. I mean, he is given this choice, this, this option. They essentially put the fate of this story in his hands um, and he chooses yes to you know in in his world give his life Mm -hmm. pretty much and as he phrases it forget his friends there's a a seed planted earlier where he says something to r2d2 about being his closest friend and there's a you know the droids always have this strange relationship with self-awareness and we impart on them more maybe than they actually have because Mm -hmm. we have come to care for these characters so much. Um, And that is definitely one of the most potent uh, recognitions of his self-awareness when he says that's R2-D2. And that's why the moment hurts even more when he gives all of that up. We should say Anthony Daniels still um, playing C-3PO. So I'm with you that that is a really great scene. I'm with you that this is a satisfying conclusion. I'm also with you that I feel a little bit of shame that I would agree Endgame is ultimately something that finds a way to balance, as you put it, the personal um, and the planetary a little bit better. And I came away from that one feeling weirdly more emotionally satisfying. Now, there's maybe a couple of reasons, practical reasons here for this. You're sort of pitting 20-some movies against nine. You know, you could argue that – More recently, I had 20 movies to get to know those other characters Mm -hmm. than some of whom then left. And so it's going to feel a bit more real. Um, But, you know, none of those characters were tied to my childhood, as I said, um, or my first love of movies. So you would think the Star Wars characters um, would hold a little more power there. And I guess maybe that's why the C-3PO scene does hit uh, as hard as it does in this film. Um, Maybe it's because Rise of Skywalker uh, also does, though overall I did like it. I think it succumbs a little bit to that lore versus myth dichotomy we talked about in terms of The Phantom Menace, where there's a lot of lore here, a lot of Sith stuff we get into, uh, the answer to Ray's background, which we will not spoil. I think we're going to try to spend a few minutes at the end of this review on spoilers. We won't do that here. I'll just say the answer to her background is complicated. Maybe. And there are maybe some more questions with it as well. And I tried to make the distinction in the Phantom Menace review between lore and myth, between stuff that needs to be explained and stuff we can we just know because it goes back as far as it does in the way you were describing the Star Wars story does. So um, so that's maybe one of the reasons that I did find Endgame to be a little more affecting and a little bit. Maybe this will come up in our MVP discussion. I feel like some of these characters are still in standby mode. Um, we definitely get an advance in Ray's personhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but Finn and Poe, you could argue that they each had their most interesting scenes or arcs in The Force Awakens. Maybe so. Um, and they have good moments here, definitely. Um, I, I think maybe better moments for those two than they got in The Last Jedi. Um, but they still seem to be I, – I can still envision many more stories with those two. Not so much because um, I feel this is left open-ended, but because we still don't quite know enough about them. Um And I think if we did, this conclusion would hit as hard as Endgame did for me also. Well, I think that the conflicts that Poe in particular had in the previous film with Holdo and with Leia does show a side of him or allows us to get a little bit more invested in his character. And I remember feeling with Last Jedi that 
Poe was a very interesting character, and John Boyega's Finn was kind of marginalized and sidelined. And then you come to this movie, and I feel like Oscar Isaac is Oscar Isaac, so he's still a lot of fun to watch. I like his chemistry with all the other characters on screen. I love the overall camaraderie of those relationships. That said, even though, without spoiling it, he does take on a little bit of a new role, you don't really see him, I don't think, fundamentally change or evolve in any way. Not in the way you see Again, not spoiling anything. It's a movie where you're going to get some progression. You see Kylo affect some change. You see certainly Ray go through change. I think you do, at least with Finn here, get a new wrinkle thrown in with his character that suggests something that we'll maybe have to get into in spoilers. Yeah, I do want to ask about that. That is, that is curious and, and worth talking about. But also his relationship to Ray is something that the movie focuses on a lot here. Even though there isn't necessarily a lot done with it, he's always visible. And his reaction to what Ray is doing mm-hmm. or what she's going through in almost every key scene, he's always there on screen. So I did appreciate that this time. They're all together more in this movie. Yes. And that's just a practical choice that I think does have its benefits, again, because of the chemistry that each of these performers has with each other. And it allows us to see their characters reflected in the other characters. Uh, there's a dynamic there that does that is enjoyable in in the rise of Skywalker. So the other question, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you had to do with again going back to our Phantom Menace review, where one thing we differed on is you said that none of the wonder you felt in the original Star Wars movies was in Phantom mm-hmm. Menace, and I argued that I found it in a few places. But let's take that question and apply it to Rise of Skywalker specifically. Were there instances of wonder here that that echoed? What you appreciated about the first ones? It's a great question, and I think I'll give you a couple that are moments I did really respond to that aren't necessarily the type of wonder I was referring to there in that discussion, but are still kind of, frankly, awesome moments or give you a little bit of a charge. And this is probably one of those fan service moments or what people have come to describe as fan service. But there's a shot late in the film, I'll just say, where we see two spacecraft sitting next to each other that I think will certainly tug on that nostalgic heartstring for anybody who goes way back with this series. And the fact that it's just a shot and we get it and it's sort of a brief glimpse and we move on is something I did appreciate that Abrams did there. You said how the characters are all together a lot more in this film. And you're right, just from a practical standpoint, one of the issues that I did have or struggle with a little bit with Last Jedi was the way it dispatches them all to different parts of the galaxy and we don't get that chemistry. And here there's a shot, this is an early shot where they have been separated, or at least one crew has been one place and Ray has been somewhere else, and they come together, and Abrams frames them very carefully in a shot together. Yeah. Right? The whole group, There's a number of the shots droid. like that. Yeah, very and, artfully done. Yeah, and something about the way that was specifically framed, seeing them together spoke as much as any thing any one of them could say in that moment. You know what's interesting about that? We also praised Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, how it ended with a shot of a group of people perfectly placed exactly where each of them should be. And it (laughs) came to mind that um, there's a lot of that here in Rise of Skywalker, very different purpose, but so that you can see each person in this group and they become one while retaining their individuality. Exactly. And looking back at my last Jedi notes, the moment of wonder, and there are some amazing set pieces there, but in terms of that kind of yearning I was looking for from a character that taps into what got us excited about the series originally, you see it at the very end of The Last Jedi. I think you see it in that closing sort of iconic shot. With the little boy. With the little boy. Yeah. And the pose and the way that is framed. There is a shot here that I will only say feels particularly relevant to what I said 
about The Phantom Menace in terms of the actual example I gave. I don't want to go down that path here. But you know what did give me the same sense of connection to these characters and wanting to see their destiny be fulfilled or them to forge their own path and carve out a new destiny. The yearning I think I saw in A New Hope and at various points in the series that I needed to see here, I really saw it in Ray. I saw it in Daisy Ridley's performance and I saw it in her anger. I like the little bit of a reversal we get in this film from the previous films in terms of her and Kylo mm. and the personalities they have and the struggles they're having as individuals. And when you get some of those shots, whether it's from a fire or any kind of red glow that kind of glints in Daisy Ridley's eyes, it's there by design, right, where we're getting that little bit of Sith that might just be coming through in her, which has always been the dark side that's in all of us that's been suggested since the very beginning of the series. And you get that showdown. There is a lightsaber showdown. That's not a spoiler. There's a lightsaber showdown that comes maybe about three quarters of the way through the movie with Kylo Ren and Rey and the way that is edited together and shot where you get those crashing waves around them. There's something completely fantastical about it, but at the same time, and The Last Jedi had a lot of these elements too, something fantastic but also tactile where it seemed, I believed, those waves and the danger that is surrounding them in that moment. But none of it really works if that battle isn't really grounded in what's happening between the two of them, if it's not grounded in their emotions fundamentally. I mean, the MVP of these three films, for me, has always been Kylo Ren Hmm. and Rey. It's been their relationship. And those scenes, even when they're not in the same space, but they're communicating with each other, almost like they are connected. Yeah. Those are the most effective scenes in any of these films. And that is what lays the foundation for that battle, I think, being as satisfying as it actually is. And it's a fairly prolonged battle. And they get to a point where you can actually see them both slowing down. Yeah, they're tired. They're tired. And you absolutely believe that. And I think it also even suggests maybe they're both acknowledging in that moment a sense of futility to it, that they're equals in this moment and they could just kind of keep doing this all day long. And where is it going to bring them? But I'm telling you, maybe I'm just that bought into the relationship and the connection between those two characters. I also sensed a very strange intimacy to it. There's oh, yeah, that's been there's there. Something, it has. Yeah, You're since right, but, the beginning. But in this lightsaber battle where they're, they're totally tired and they are basically right up against each other. Mm-hmm. Man, this is going to get kinky. Rubbing their <laughs> lightsabers against each other. They're almost not even, Josh, clashing their lightsabers in this moment. They're just yeah. touching yeah. lightsabers. You're right. And it is intimate. It's sensual. And I think that... It's really what carried me through that relationship is what's carried me through this entire part of the saga. Well, that's been the interesting wrinkle in what Abrams and his screenwriters have done with these three films, right, is it's taken that relationship that is adversarial. Mm -hmm. And while the original trilogy in particular, it was complicated by family relationships, right, with Luke and and Darth Vader. Yep. Uh, But here, yes, there is something, they're adversaries, but they're also, there's flirtatiousness is the wrong word, but there's a tension there that is also not even romantic, but sexual, frankly, in in a lot of the scenes. Um, And I think that does add an interesting wrinkle. I'm going to go to an earlier confrontation in the film between those two. That's kind of my... Did you see any sense of wonder or are you just... Yeah, this is my moment of wonder for me. Uh, 
Um, and, and actually, I, I thought there was wonder in that C-3PO sequence, which we've okay. al- already broken yeah. down. But his something about those eyes of his, which which glow in a way that is completely robotic, but even from the beginning, also have a life force to them. And I, I don't think this is a spoiler because even I've been trying to avoid everything and there are images of this out there. But those eyes turn red in the process hmm. um, and just losing something there. It's yeah. almost the draining of wonder. Maybe in that Maybe moment so. that makes that a powerful scene. But the other one is an early confrontation between uh, Kylo Ren and Rey, and I believe this was in the first trailer too, but it's on this desert planet, another desert planet, and she is just standing there alone with her lightsaber, and he is approaching in uh, it's some sort of TIE fighter, um, coming at her low to the ground. And this the was in way, the teaser trailer. Yeah, 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 it was. So, which I wish it hadn't have been because, again, even me avoiding. This is one of the best moments. Of oh, the film. my goodness. I mean, For it's, sure. I would say um, Ryan Johnson delivers more majestic sequences in The Last Jedi than yes. in either of the two other films. And this one about matches some of the stuff he did in Last Jedi in terms of the filmmaking, the camera yeah. work. Um, as Kylo Ren approaches in the spaceship, it's all in long shot. We can see the distance between them. We get a sense of the speed of him approaching. And then Ray, when we cut to her, is a close-up. And we see the intensity, the decision-making process, the choice to turn around, which, of course, is not what we would expect. And so immediately you're wondering, what is she going to do? And we go back and forth, long shot to Ren, then a close-up to Ray as they get closer and closer. Um, and then the flip and mm-hmm. the acrobatic move. I mean, it's that is all in one frame, yes. right? Slow motion. So we can see everything happening. Uh, I do think that other duel, there's a little bit too much of medium shots in there where the 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 dueling itself gets lost, even though the intimacy is there. But yeah, going back to this desert showdown, I, I just think uh, that's a fantastic sequence that captures what I like about it. I talked about this a little bit in The Phantom Menace is this idea of the scale of hope that's always defined these, this series formally mm-hmm. in terms of aesthetic choices, always emphasizing how the rebels are um, – are outsized in some way. And here's just another example of that where you have this lone figure sure. facing off against this craft that should have all the advantage. Um, and yet the the hope that lies still in her choice to stand there and miraculously pull something off. So that had a little bit uh, of wonder to me as well. Uh, maybe I wish the film had one or two more of those. Um, certainly, I think it it stumbles to a start. There was a there was a long time before I really got settled into this movie. We move from one sequence to another in unfamiliar places. You're trying to figure out what's going on a little bit, get your bearings. And I would say none of those individual early sequences have anything in and of themselves um, that kind of grabbed me. It, it took a while for the movie to give mm-hmm. me something that that was kind of made you sit up in your seat a little bit. Yeah, I think. Like one of my complaints with The Phantom Menace, this one, at least initially, seems very, very plot heavy. There are yeah, a lot of machinations fair. here to the story. And I will say that, and I would like to qualify it, even though I can't give anything away, by at least noting that when you do distance yourself from it a little bit, you realize that, no, at the end of the day, there kind of is one main objective. And yes, about 17 different things get in their way. There's a lot of doodads, MacGuffins, yeah. uh, a couple dongles you got to deal with in this right. movie that maybe we didn't So need. I felt like I always understood where it was trying to go. Yes, that's true. Even though we can get lost in the minutia of some of the decisions where they know that they need object X. And as soon as they get close to it, something happens that then they have to go on a new mission. And that was another issue I had with last Jedi as well. Instead of just kind of getting to spend time with these characters, a lot of time we're spending Mm -hmm. time with them when they're always in the midst of some danger. And 
maybe I like the threat of danger a little bit more than them always having to come up with some miraculous way to get out of something. I think, too, this is an issue with these movies. It's an issue with these movies. It's an issue with the Marvel movies, which is the sense of being able to latch on to the stakes of it when you know that something miraculous could happen any moment, whether it's a last second rescue or a ghost is going to appear or something is going to happen that is going to completely change everything that we thought was happening in the scene. When you know that that's always possible, then it's hard to really latch on. And of course, this goes back to the Avengers film before Endgame, where we all said, okay, they they just did something really dramatic and unexpected, but does it does it really mean anything? Yeah. You know? And this is a much smaller version of that, but there's a lot of different examples of that in the film that I always find just take me out of it a little bit when I realize, oh, that thing that I was just getting kind of emotional about, turns out everything's fine. Well, and I think part of that is that the powers keep increasing, I think, yes. of, of what Ray is able to do and even Kylo Ren is able to do. And, and the more powerful you are, sometimes the less interesting it becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so so who's your MVP? Are you, are you going to say it's Kylo Ren and Ray's dynamic? Or yeah. are you going to go with a character? No, I mean, you had to name a character. It's their characters. Okay. No, I mean, it's absolutely Kylo and Ray. And I guess if I was naming an MVP, I can't wait to hear yours. I've looked at the list and I don't know that any of the supporting players stood out to me in a way that made me feel like I suppose they stole the movie. And I don't know if you feel that way either, but it really does come back to Ray's journey in this film, the performance that Daisy Ridley gives in terms of really feeling like moment to moment. She's not just wrestling with she's torn the dark side. She is completely conflicted and she is sensing in her a potential destiny or sensing in her a capacity for evil, a capacity to embrace that dark side that we never really get, I would say, even when it's hinted at in moments for convenience of the story. I don't know that we ever fully get with Luke. Do we ever really feel like I he, was thinking about he might that. turn? Because this is speaking to what you were saying earlier about it repeating things. Mm-hmm. This is very much, especially in its last third, Return of the Jedi. Um, the climax, the the conclusion, um, and I I won't spoil more than that. And so that's when I was thinking about it: is did we see Luke being tempted in the way we see Ray? And I don't know that we had to. They're it doesn't have to a be choice. a one to one. It always comes down to a certain choice they have to make. And I guess what I'm saying is, do we feel like when Ray is really confronting the power inside her, is she considering embracing it? in a destructive way. Do we feel that same way about Luke ever? Now, I haven't revisited those films in a while, but I would say, at least coming out of this film, I did really feel it with Ridley's performance. Yeah, it registers a little bit more strongly, perhaps. So who's your MVP? And I I have a question about that, about her choice. We'll get to in spoilers. My MVP, I agree with you, their dynamic is more interesting than any individual character. But just in terms of the characters, I was going to go with Poe because you're right, he may not get enough attention narratively. Yeah. But my goodness, does Oscar Isaac make every line and not even line, but glance and head shake. Yeah. There is a moment near the end of this film that is going to be gift for eternity. Yes. And And it's the kind of brilliant look that I think only Oscar Isaac can pull off. And that's what this this movie needs some of that to lighten things up. Uh, There's a wonderful gag where I think Ray first. Yeah. First turns on her lightsaber in the screen and he's next to her and he just holds up a flashlight and yeah. turns it on. But he doesn't play it as if as, it's a joke, but he doesn't play it as if Poe is making a joke. No. Oscar Isaac is always willing to be emasculated in this series. <laughs> yes. And that's a perfect example of, well, let me pull mine out. Uh, oh. Uh-huh. Well, maybe he isn't even aware that he's going to be emasculated. But <laughs> until, it he is, until it happens. Until it happens. It's a great moment. Yeah. So I was going to go with him, but 
I think maybe it's C-3PO. Really? See, I think it that's is. amazing. And I wondered I'm, if you were going to go there, especially after you hated on him. I you, did. You even you equated him in any way to Jar Jar Binks, and now you're going to say he's the MVP? I think he's come a long way, Adam. <laughs> a long way. What character development in that droid? <laughs> Such personality. You like him. I do. I think, yeah, yeah it, it was the like most said, moving moment. It's the, one, it's the one that fits in this series well for a good reason and also harkens back to the earlier films and to all the films, really, every single mm-hmm. one, um, and, and ties them together. So, yeah, so we should take a little break, and I do have more questions for you in the spoiler realm. Yeah. Why don't we um, go ahead and stop there? Star good. Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker is out now in theaters, probably everywhere now. What we're going to do is end here. And if you subscribe to the podcast, if you're listening to the podcast version of this show, you can hear some spoiler talk that we will put at the end of this episode, which is episode 757. If you see The Rise of Skywalker and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. From one of the biggest films of the year to some indie talk, we'll announce the finalists for our 2019 Golden Brick Award, which goes to underseen films from emerging filmmakers, plus Adam's interview with the Safdie brothers about their latest, Uncut Gems. Stay with us. That's from the trailer for Atlantics, the new Dakar Senegal set film from director Matty Diop. It is one of four finalists for Film Spotting's 2019 Golden Brick Award. It's our annual award for the underseen or overlooked movie of the year that comes from a new or emerging director. And this is a movie that we both just made time for getting ready for the end of year onslaught, the top 10 films of 2019 roundtable. It did just come out here mid-November and you can see it right now on Netflix. Yeah, Diop is an actress. She began as an actress and maybe best known for starring in Claire Denis' 35 Shots of Rum. Mm-hmm. That's one of Denise I haven't seen. Have you? I have, Adam? yeah. Okay. Um, and is making her feature directing debut with Atlantics. It had its debut back in May at the Cannes Film Festival. Remember, it got a lot of praise. And I am really glad that we were able to squeeze it in under the wire here and get it included in this Golden Brick finalist group. You mentioned the acclaim the film got at Cannes, and Diop was actually the first black female contender for the Palme d'Or. So this movie is not only joining the list of nominees that we shared a while back here over Thanksgiving, it actually is going to be one of our four finalists because we each had a strong enough response to it. And it's a tough one to talk about because it's a movie that I think becomes maybe most fascinating and most powerful when 
it takes a turn when it Definitely. takes a definite unexpected turn and never really, I suppose, compromises what the movie fundamentally is. It doesn't become another kind of film, another yeah, genre I even, completely. I wouldn't even call it a twist. Yeah, it's not. And yet the film takes on an entirely new dimension when there is a certain revelation. So we encourage you to see it now on Netflix if you can. And we hope you'll do it not only to watch a good movie, but to do your homework so you can vote for the Golden Brick finalists. We have, along with Atlantic's The Last Black Man in San Francisco, you are going to hear more about that on our end-of-year shows, definitely some love among our roundtable directed by Joe Talbot. It's a poetic and sometimes surreal exploration of gentrification in San Francisco, definitely exploring the idea of home. You may recall that I interviewed Joe Talbot and the film star and co-writer Jimmy Fails earlier in the year. That is also available to rent on most platforms. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, it's free. The other two rounding out the finalist grouping are The Art of Self-Defense. This is directed by Riley Stearns. Features Jesse Eisenberg as a mild-mannered guy who gets involved with an eccentric karate dojo. The Art of Self-Defense, also available to rent on most platforms. And then the fourth finalist is Honeyland. This is directed by Lubo Stefanov and Tamara Kotevska. It's a documentary set in Macedonia and follows a beekeeper who uses ancient practices to do her work. But then she has this family come into town, sort of an itinerant family that takes up beekeeping as well and really disrupts the harmony that she had established. Honeyland also available to rent on most platforms, which is fantastic. I love that it worked out this year that uh, especially for listeners who want to vote, you can watch all four of these right now. The winner will be determined by a fair and square vote. We get a vote, me, you, Josh, our producer, Sam, and our top 10 of the year partners, Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson, along with the Next Picture Show crew, Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, along with Tasha. And yes, you, the listeners, get a vote. So your job is to watch these movies and then vote at filmspotting.net in the poll. It's pretty easy to find if you just scroll down a little bit on the main page. You've got until Monday, January 13th to do it. We're going to announce the winner during our in-studio 2019 wrap party, which we'll post on January 17th. More info about the Golden Brick and this year's finalists and all the past winners is available at filmspotting.net slash bricks. Giving you a little peek ahead at uh, what's to be expected for programming. It is the end of the year, so you know what that means. It's our top 10 of 2019 roundtable. We will, as we have in recent years, include Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson from the next picture show. We break that into two parts. You're going to get two shows. It takes two shows to cover all of this. And what we've been doing for two years now, maybe three, is include all the outliers in part one. So these are the films that made only one list among the four of us. And then part two, we'll get down to those consensus picks, really what are considered by the panel to be the best films of the year. What this means, we figured out, is that we're covering over the two shows about 34 or so, so films. You're going to get a huge chunk of film spotting coming ahead. So prepare yourselves. Yeah, you really do have to prepare yourselves. And going by past feedback, people our listeners tend to look forward to these longer deep dives into the year. They're usually about two hour podcasts each. And uh, we're going to even test that and stretch those boundaries a little bit this year with this round table, because as you said, 34 movies to cover. There were a lot of outliers, I think more than we've had in recent years. And then the movies that were the consensus picks, not only were our consensus picks, but I think they are pretty much in keeping with the movies that 
you see on a lot of end of year lists or a lot of rankings as the best of the year. They feel to me those final six or seven movies feel like the six or seven most essential films of the year. Whether or not you had them exactly ranked in the same place I did or not, they feel like the movies of the year and the movies that really dominated the discourse here late in the year. So buckle up for that two-part roundtable coming your way next week. Speaking of Tasha Robinson, we wanted to give you a heads up on what's going on over at the Next Picture Show, where she hosts alongside Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They always do a new movie pairing, a recent release with a classic, and this time they're pairing two Ryan Johnson films. It's Ryan Johnson's Mystery Mastery. So part one is going to be a look back at his debut picture, Brick, the namesake, we should say, for the Golden Brick Award. And then they're going to look, of course, at Knives Out, his new picture. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts or go over to nextpictureshow.net. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. We're going to spare you a performance this week, but a couple weeks back, Adam and I did Massacre this scene. This reminded me of many such uh, accounts one learns in childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. Twelve Commandments? Mm. Excuse me, but uh, I believe there were only ten. Really? Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent! (laughs) Well then, which which two to take off? Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. Well... After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots, don't murder, uh, don't covet thy neighbour's house or wife, one simply wouldn't do anyway, (laughs) because they are wrong. So Tom Bennett as the sublimely stupid Sir James Martin, alongside James Fleet and Justin Edwards in 2016's Love and Friendship, written by Whit Stillman, based on the novel by Jane Austen, also directed by Stillman. That massacre was part of a show a couple weeks back when we had reviews of Greta Gerwig's Little Women, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, and Mariel Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So... Why did we massacre Love and Friendship? Well, Molly Zielenbach right here in Chicago has all the answers. She says there are some clear and not so clear ties between the cast and filmmakers of the films you featured on this episode and Love and Friendship. Most notably, Greta Gerwig starred in Stillman's 2011 feature Damsels in Distress. Perhaps more of a stretch, Love and Friendship's Chloe Sevigny paired up with Christian Bale in American Psycho. And before contemporary thinking girl's heartthrob Timothy Chalamet was even a wink in his parents' eyes, Christian Bale, one of the original sensitive brooders with real acting chops, set many a young girl's heart aflutter as Theodore Laurie Lawrence in 1994's film adaptation of Little Women. Molly continues, I do think the most compelling connections between these films, though, are thematic. Both Knives Out and Love and Friendship are needle-sharp satires with big, beating hearts, and both feature women on the outside who face cruel and arbitrary social structures. Both Little Women and Love and Friendship are adaptations of literary works by beloved women authors, and both feature women protagonists who are smart and headstrong. As period pieces, both also mark skillful and boundary-expanding departures from their filmmakers' usual subject matter, chronicling the lives and relationships of the UHB. And there's a longer discussion to have about the profound influence of Stillman films on the work of both Gerwig and her creative and romantic partner, Noah Baumbach. Well done, Molly, including the 
somewhat obscure reference to Whit Stillman's Metropolitan there with UHB. And I know it's somewhat obscure because I had to Google it in order to make sure I knew what Molly was talking about. Thanks so much to Molly and everyone who entered Massacre Theater the past couple of weeks. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. That would be Philip Hall out in Los Angeles. Congratulations, Philip. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. You know, you might also just wait too. You never know. We could potentially hand deliver it to Philip. Mm, little tease there. Little tease. Crazy risk, a gamble. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. That's the dumbest bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. That's Adam Sandler in the trailer for Uncut Gems. It's the latest from brother filmmakers Josh and Benny Safdie. Sandler plays Howard, a New York City jeweler and compulsive gambler. When he gets his hands on a rare uncut gem, an opal, he attempts to parlay it into the score of a lifetime. Naturally, it doesn't go well. Complications include a brother-in-law loan shark, his wife, played by Idina Menzel, and former NBA star Kevin Garnett, who appears in the film as himself. The Safdie brothers have been making features since the late 2000s, but it was their last film, 2017's Good Time, starring Robert Pattinson, that brought them wider acclaim, got them certainly more on my radar. In that film, Pattinson played Connie, a small-time New York City hustler who spends a frenzied night attempting to get his mentally disabled brother out of prison. The brother, Nick, was played by Benny Safdie. I caught up with Josh and Benny here in Chicago a few weeks ago to talk about Uncut Gems, and we did play the Film Spotting 5 once again. This is their second time on Film Spotting, and I think everyone will enjoy the end of it. Definitely stay for the end of the Film Spotting 5, where I asked them to come up with their best film of the decade. We're getting, obviously, near the end of the decade. It's on everyone's minds. I thought, I'd love to hear what these guys who watch a lot of movies and are really passionate about cinema, what they thought the best film of the year was. And they couldn't decide on just one. And Josh, actually, you'll hear it, gets out his phone and looks up a list of the 10 films he had submitted to, I think, Calle de Cinema and never did. So an exclusive here on Film Spotting. Here are Josh and Benny Safdie. We last spoke for Good Time back in 2017. And I think it's fair to say there's a lot of Connie in Howard <laughs> here in this film. They're both kind of single-mindedly focused on whatever their objective is, though mm-hmm. their objectives are very different. Yeah. And we'll definitely get in to that. But there's that sense of the urgency of the moment always bringing out kind of the best in them or the worst in them, which is something we talked about. And I was wondering if you guys are aware or how aware are you of a character's lineage, if you will, when you're creating that character. Are you thinking oh. about how similar Howard may be to? Well, it's 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 um, kind of I, I, not. No, the short answer is no. But the the longer answer is what happens when you spend ten years working on a project. That's how long we're working on Uncut right. Gems. So Connie and his creation was basic. Was the whole film Good Time? came about because Pattinson wanted to work with us and we, he wasn't right for any role in Uncut Gems and it led to the creation of Good Time and actually Benny's character in Good Time was originally in Uncut Gems and then we used it for that one So, so, but I do think that the single-mindedness and the determination to see a dream re- realized and prove your worth in the world uh, or maybe to the universe 
comes stems from uh, a, a decade long pursuit of a, of a single entity, which is hmm. Uncut Gems. Yeah, and I think it's it, it also makes sense to just kind of see a character who you might not at first see the the beauty in or the understanding in, and kind of trying to under, to see the 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 love in them or. Understanding, and that's what Uncut Gems is. You know, it's the rough on the outside, but beautiful sure. on the inside. The difference p- to, for me um, between Gems and, and Good Time, uh, you know, is that the Connie character was slightly more anthropological in the sense that I can I've seen that person before. I know people like that. There are tiny little pieces of me in it, but it's for more or less uh, a study. Whereas Gems. There's a lot of me in Howard. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff in that movie um, that maybe wasn't in Good Time, not to denigrate Good Time in any way. Well, I want to stay on this path for a second because, as you said, they're both kind of con men at their core, right? Mm -hmm. Self-destructive, always a sense of things kind of spiraling out of control around them. But Connie is sympathetic in that we can definitely appreciate his larger purpose, which is to keep his brother, played by you, Benny, Mm -hmm. out of jail. We know he needs to be protected. We're on board with that. So I feel like for most viewers getting to a place where the end justifies whatever insane means we're watching unfold, it's easier to get to probably. I think it's a tougher proposition with Howard. And so I'm curious. That's the first time I've heard that. Yeah, I don't see that. So that's that's where I was going is that I feel like he's more irredeemable. And I wondered if that was part of the challenge and fun for you with this project or if you discard that completely and you see him as redeemable. I I see Howard as as the ultimate provider. I think that he's a, you know, Connie's kind of does a lot of you know, really, ir- he's, you know. he's also the reason that the brother's in jail in the first place, yeah. you know, so. True. It's, it's, so it's like kind of a loop. I mean, Howard is such a, this character Sandler plays, and also Sandler in general is, is a notoriously lovable person. And I think that Howard is, is uh, I think that he's ultimately a righteous person. And I don't, th- I don't see him as a con man. I don't think that he has any con that yeah. he's pulling, he's trying to pull off in this film. Okay. I think that he's, he's actually, he's just trying, the con might be to prove that he belongs in a society that actually might say you don't belong. Yeah. Maybe your place is to be somewhat towards the bottom and not some guy at the top and he's trying to cheat God. And, and I think that the, this, the, pa- the patriarchal part of, of Howard is, you know, uh, you know, that he has all these people who depend on him, that all these people that he has to support, mm-hmm. which makes him, I think, inc- I mean, look, they're both, they're both same sides of there's different they're parts of our voice but i do but i it's funny though because i do you know i remember when um scott rudin who's one of the producers of this film when he read it he said the opposite when he read the script he was like you know the difference here is that you know howard's a guy huh. you can love mm-hmm. whereas connie you can't love him yeah. yeah and i think it's howard howard does bring the best out of the people around him you know he creates this environment where everybody has a say in some ways and and i think with with him he also knows when he, he does know when he's going to do something, how it will affect other people. And I think he knows that and then does it anyway. He does it anyway. But the thing is, is at least he is aware of that. And like when he checks in with his daughter, he knows he's affected the family in a deep, deep way. Right. And I think that's part of what we were talking about with Sandler, too, was here's a guy who does some things that you might not be able to get behind. But it's very important that we root him in real emotions and feelings because – you do need to love this guy. You do need to root for him. And when people are yelling at the screen, oh, don't do that, don't do this, you don't want him to do it. If you didn't like somebody or didn't love somebody, you wouldn't really be yelling at the screen to get them to stop. Yeah, the film right. is called Uncut Gems 
uh, you know, by design, obviously. Uh, we we don't just uh, pick, not pick, <laughs> random, pick random words out of a hat. But, you know, the concept of something being considered or deemed unvaluable on the outside because of rough impressions. Uh, and when you scope down underneath it and get to something, you get to the insides of 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 this of this gem there's actually deep value there and that you can take in the sense that you know certain people are you know they might appear rough on the outside but deep down inside there's something kind of great about them and that's you know the perseverance the fact that he's a very egalitarian person everyone mm-hmm. is equal in their regards someone like Connie not everybody was equal at all he was actually mm-hmm. very very condescending uh, of a person so there are these elements to uh to the character that 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 I can that I disagree with sure. you on, but sure. it's your experience. No, it, and and then, I want to be clear, it's yeah. nuanced, right? We could we could yeah. dissect these two characters, for talk sure. about their similarities and differences. I think for a long time, and I think that's I love them both. To the I love all of our characters. characters. So yeah, yeah, and, and that comes through. And I think that was one of the surprises for me of the film, not knowing really anything about. It. I try to go in with as much of a blank slate, not even watching trailers if mm-hmm. I can avoid it. And I sort of expected, even after the first few minutes, that I was going to watch kind of a standard movie tale of a gambler who is a loser, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what we usually see, guys. who They're, they're so they, – they owe so much money to someone. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to get out of this hole that they're in, and they're willing to do anything to get out of it. Sure. But that's not really the character you guys have created. He's he's not just trying to get himself out of a hole. He's, he's willing to dig whatever size hole <laughs> he has to to achieve some kind of higher calling almost, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, what's funny is – and I don't want to spoil the movie in any way, but for a guy who's a degenerate gambler <laughs> – there's some pretty big bets in this movie yes. that he, you know, that that he takes that he maybe makes. So, uh, you know, it is. I think the higher calling element to it is is. He's also don't forget he's a guy who was the man in the '90s, late '90s and early aughts. He was the guy, and uh, you know, and he's starting to now see that fall away, and that uh, that life is full of cycles, and that he's actually trying to. Uh, kind of rev- rev- go against the grain of uh, of natural tides. Yeah, yeah and so, I think oh, just just like we um, just cut him off. Ben. Well, yeah, but because it's like I he, would rather hear from you. Okay, <laughs> so what our list? He's not. It's yes. He he has he has lost, but he goes through life as a winner. You know. Yeah, you touched on the casting of. Adam Sandler. So how important was it? Whether you love him or not, or I'm being too harsh uh, on Howard, he certainly does a lot of hurtful things to Mm -hmm. other people. How Mm -hmm. important was it to have a character like Sandler who brings just an affability and Mm -hmm. an amiability to anything he does? Paramount. Yeah, it wouldn't work. There's no other person. The only other person who I could ever see this movie uh, functioning with is Rodney Dangerfield. And, and but that was that would have to be ten years before Easy Money. But then again, Easy Money came at a time in his life when you know he had a certain age that made him lovable. Yeah, Sandler's Sandler has a an a, an uncanny ability to root the most absurd scenarios in a weird form of his own brand of realism. Yeah, and you, he look, has, you look at those early... And he's lovable. Yeah, People yeah. love him, and I love him. I deeply love him. We grew up on his records before we even met, saw the movies. Sure. You, look, you look at his early, his like the, so all of his comedies, really, but those early comedies, which are so crazy and so absurd, and you really are looking at the screen and saying, I want that guy to win, and I want him to succeed. And it's just something inside of him. You know, It's part of his soul that we knew that that needed to be brought to the character in mm-hmm. a way that the film wouldn't work without that. You know? Yeah. And I wanted to ask about one element of the performance, and I'm totally prepared for you guys to tell me I'm wrong about this part, too. But the frenetic pace of the film, right? <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to tell you you're wrong about anything. It's, uh, I'm that's what's great about it. movies is that they're <laughs> your it. own. They're the, yeah. the viewer's experience. For sure. But this is I, – I know this word. Talk about cliches. You've heard it 
4,000 times. It's intense, right? Mm-hmm. Just oh, like yeah, good time for was. Sure. And it struck me, though, fairly early on and throughout the film that Howard is never really overwhelmed by it, right? Mm-hmm, he, never. he kind of thrives on it. Obviously, he's usually the one causing it. But <laughs> I think you actually see that in Sandler's performance a little bit in how relatively slowly he speaks, <laughs> right? He's always in motion and he's always talking, that's for sure. But it seemed to me almost like he's always slowing down the pace a little bit, like a point guard, yeah. you know, who's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it up. It's a little bit too chaotic. I'm going to bring it up deliberately he, and consider my options. He's always, like listening. he's always listening he and, and feeling the conversations around him. And yeah, that's... The truth is there is like there's a moment where it does kind of catch up with him and he does feel the weight of it all. But for the most part, he is trying. He's trying his hardest. You know, he's thinking I guess what makes it so stressful is there's so many decisions happening right away and they're all like, oh, my God, I wish you did that. But he is trying to make the best decision in that exact second the thing, and keep going from mm-hmm. there. The thing that I'm most uh, – uh, kind of moved by and and uh, encouraged by is in the screening process of this movie since Telluride, Toronto, New York, etc. Even last night in Chicago, you is is seeing how entertained people are by the stressful scenarios, and that's taking a concept of hey, we're going to make this comedic thriller uh, or thriller comedic drama, however you want to peg this movie, but it's thrilling in its in its soul. And we're going to include in the thrill a tension that is so per- lived in and real and personal that it, and then we're going to have someone like Adam Sandler come and add humor to it at moments. Mm-hmm. It's it's making it's creating this new form of entertainment if you want to call it that but it's it, the experience is so immersive and i think seeing it like we saw last night in the theater you can you know if you see a, a sad movie with an audience hearing someone cry might actually be distracting i'm not taking anything away from sad movies but that is the truth if you see a scary movie with a bunch of people the collective fright is a huge part of the experience seeing a thriller like this with a bunch of people i'm telling you i've seen it in every theater you can yeah, feel the entire audience sure lean towards the screen as if they want to reach out to the screen and grab Howard, Adam Sandler, and just shake some sense into him. Right. There, there's, <laughs> there's, sure. there's actually, I don't, it's popping in my head right now. There's a, a very funny scene in uh, the Buster Keaton movie, Steamboat Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, and he, like he's, his whole boat is sinking and he, he's holding all, all of the, the, uh, the holes, the water's pouring in, he doesn't know what to do, so he realizes, okay, I got it. He then picks up a hammer. He's in the bottom of the boat. Picks up a hammer and some nails. And he goes to <laughs> nail in over the hole inside the boat. And in the moment, you're thinking, that's a great idea. Cover up the hole. The moment the hammer hits the nail, course, more water starts yeah, pouring. It's like, but that's the essence that <laughs> yes. you're trying to kind of create <laughs> yeah. here. When we were here last time, we talked about Pattinson's performance. And I asked you guys to talk about a moment or a scene in the film where he really surprised you with something where it wasn't how you envisioned it at all when it was on the page and Benny you had a, a great moment which was a moment between the two of you the hug and mm-hmm. and I love you scene in the elevator and and Josh you talked about that great line he has when he says to the younger girl you know don't don't be confused it'll just make it harder <laughs> for me and yeah. also that that kind of that story he tells Jennifer Jason Lee in the taxi cab mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if there's a similar story with Sandler. Is there there an example a, for oh each my of God, you? There was, it was, it was so many. Where he really surprised you with something? I think that the I think that there's a big scene between him and Kevin Garnett uh, towards the end of the film. Uh, it's about a six page scene, and it's you know it's a it's the scene we spent the most time writing and the most time editing and the least time shooting. But that's largely because of the testament to the two performers. Garnett blew us away, but Sandler, the way that he was able to. to give the 
uh, moral compass and the meaning of the movie, mm-hmm. essentially, in one scene without it feeling like naked exposition and just like it's from his soul and you kind of feel bad for him in that moment. And it's and that was that was unbelievable. Another moment that, you know, is like a tiny scene. There's a scene with the sports uh, radio show host personality, Mike Francesa, yeah. where Sandler delivers this line. I, they use it in the trailers. I disagree. The way that he said it, you know, first of all, he has this motor mouth quality throughout the whole scene. And then he pauses at the end and he just looks at me and goes, I disagree. I disagree, <laughs> Gary. Great. The way that he said it from a, as a Sandler fan, too, was just like, oh, there's the iconic Sandler moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I... It's there's so many moments like it's hard to justify one because I know which one you want to do though. Though with the guard, we don't have to do it. Either. Oh yeah, no, he's, he's, when he's with Adina in that in that uh-huh. conversation, Adina Menzel. Adina Menzel. That's a big scene. Yeah, but go, he, Sandler he, he, starts doing this kind of yeah. thing where he's like exhaling. There's a lot of mouth movement where he's like, <clears throat> he's like you can feel the uncomfort like that he's yes. or the, the he's really trying to get it out, but he's not saying it. But yeah, in general, it was just watching him make these micro decisions as Howard. It's like I wasn't watching Adam perform it. I was watching Howard in these scenes doing it. And there's like a very little one where it's like when Garnett says to his manager, um, just wait right here. We'll be right back. Howard just instinctively owns that idea and looks at the manager and does the same exact hand motion that Garnett does like a half a second later just to be like, oh, yeah, that was my idea. This is good. Uh-huh. I also I also really love the, uh, you know, he, he would add improvised jokes all the time, <laughs> like little things that he felt like Howard could do, you know, uh, um, in particular, like tiny weird borscht belty things. Like mm-hmm. when he when he goes in and uh, is going to pawn a ring to these two real jewelers, he goes, I'd shake your hand, but I know where it's been. Right. Just like it's such a bad joke, it but it's such <laughs> yeah. a. How it's such a jeweler joke that he did, and it, it was moment. really great for sure. And the movie was, was is filled with stuff like that. Yeah, you talked about the immersive quality. Of the film sound obviously mm-hmm. has a, a big part in that, and I know Altman is a big touchstone for you guys. And there's that element to it. Mm-hmm. I think anyone watching it will get a little bit of a sense of whether it's The Long Goodbye or McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But when I think about those films in particular, which I love, there's that sense of kind of hanging out in the space mm-hmm. with all those multiple voices. You're yeah. just kind of, it's very laid back and you yeah. get to kind of eavesdrop on the conversations <clears throat> and decide which one you're going to poke your head in on. Yes. There's nothing really laid back at no. all about how you guys are doing well, it Well, California here, right? Split, another Altman film, <laughs> yep. you know, in the, about gambling. The, all the gambling dens are, are, are filled with all of these kind of, you know, again, more down and out players but there is you're right there's there's a great story about uh, Warren Beatty at the premiere of McCabe and Mrs. Miller he's sitting next to mm-hmm. Robert Altman and 20 minutes into the movie Warren Beatty turns to uh, Altman and he goes does the whole movie sound like this <laughs> and Altman turned to him with smiling he goes yeah, yeah. The, the, how cool is that and Altman's and, and Beatty's just like oh I, got, I can't handle this because it was he was so ahead of his time yeah. the thing, and the, you're pointing out something interesting which is yes if you let it exist in, in kind of a more laid back feeling it's one thing. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to kind of really capture the points of view of everybody in the scene mm-hmm. at almost exactly the same time. And we're very, very like the shot reverse shot is so important. And to get a shot reverse shot within that environment from a production standpoint is almost physically impossible. Mm-hmm. But we're so, so tuned in to kind of making that impossibility a reality. And what it does for the actors, I think, is something kind of incredible because you, if you give people the ability to speak over one another and not have to wait, you're going to create a performance that's a lot freer. And it's like, yes, it's like we're going to make that work afterwards no matter how hard it's going to be. But, yeah, what Altman did there, which I found a little uh, like it's so, so important was – 
the realism of the performances in these situations that aren't real. And then I guess what we're trying to do now is just take that and then create the the appearance of a two camera cutting, even though it's not possible that we're right. not doing that, but to create this kind of single camera point of view shift at any moment in time. I'm, I'm surprised that Benny was able to actually get that all across <laughs> because to prove a point right now. I'm messing with, with the, the volume modulation on his <laughs> He's headphones, a pro. <laughs> and it's going from blasting to complete to zero. And and that's and that's something that life is all about. Sometimes you have these cacophony right. noises that you have to ignore. And as an actor, I think it's very freeing. I think for a lot of the actors, it was. I wanted to yeah, I wanted to touch on that because you talk about maybe how they felt in that space. My first reaction was, as an actor, I would find it so distracting and so chaotic that maybe I couldn't fully get into the character. But I imagine it is just the opposite. It's kind of freeing. It yeah, lends itself to an authenticity. You to you're not, you're yeah, not performing as much. Yeah, exactly, you're not thinking right? about exactly. the construct of the scene. You know, you're thinking about, okay, this is, you're, this, this is all really happening, so just, just go with that, it. I think that as, some, as, you know, I think <laughs> as somebody who's acted briefly in a couple of things, I think a big thing that you know, sometimes you know, is that suspension disbelief and, and being able to uh, inv- in, in, basically disappear into, into the character. You know, in a specific scene, in a scene between Sandler and Lakeith Stanfield, there's a scene early on in the movie where they have a conversation about fake Rolexes. And, you know, that conversation is supposed to be a private one amongst a uh, a group of uh, of people in a small showroom in it on seventh floor in, on forty seventh street in New York City. Now, I hate it in movies and TV when you see people have a private conversation that's clearly can be heard. So we encourage all the extras to to actually speak and have their own experience. And I think for Lakeith and Sandler, that was. That was really informing and it allowed them to actually feel like they were having a private conversation that felt like it had high stakes Mm -hmm. because you have, you know, and also don't forget that if the general din of the audio of people speaking arose a certain amount, they could increase the volume of their voice. So there was no pretending in Mm -hmm. a certain way. And then on our end, it's a matter of like, like you're working with somebody like Skip Livesay who was mixing it. He has to kind of keep it. In a in a relative reality, you know, we were working with the con- the confines of that as our as our basis. Mm-hmm. So when you have that audio, it's a matter of working it in and working like we would actually be listening to certain parts. And when there was a uh, a break in the dialogue, we're like, oh, let's bring in that ADR that we recorded in the background. Let's raise it up so you can hear that person there. And it is kind of a woven fabric of sound there. Want to close, though, there's so much more to get to with this movie, <laughs> with our kind of rapid-fire film spotting five you guys were nice enough to play last time. The first two questions, same as last time. What's the last movie you saw in a theater other than your own? Last movie I saw in a, th- last movie I saw in a theater was, I mean, we've been having to promote so much. Might have been Parasite? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, for me, it might have been uh, the. Oh, light. no. What am I talking about? I just went to go see Lost Highway two days ago in really? LA. Yeah. At uh, Tarantino as a theater. In, uh, yeah. And then before that, I did three. Every break that I had in LA, oh, I would go to Tarantino's theater. I saw New Murder Bev, by right? New Beverly. Yeah. I saw Murder by Contract. And the one before that was Dolomite is yeah, King. Yeah, Dolomite. And, uh, and then, yeah. And then I did. Uh, and then I, I did. But the most recent new release I saw, I guess, was Dolomite. Yeah, and Parasite Dolomite. was right before. And I saw I saw the lighthouse in Parasite. Okay, the movie, a movie that you revisited recently, something you love that you in checked a, out in a lonely place. Oh yeah, great film, um, yeah. Nicholas Ray. Yeah, and oddly relevant for this movie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I want to say oh, that I revisited because I, I actually the one uh, it's 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 hard because I I I'm, I revisited a bunch of stuff in pieces, mm-hmm. but. Um, 
I guess Hole in the Head. Okay. I watched that again recently. Yeah. Is there a current movie obsession you have? A director, an actor, an actress? Uh, yeah, I went. Uh, I recently wanted to rewatch every Tak Fujimoto <laughs> lensed movie, uh, and it leads you down a, a pretty like extensive eighties. Uh, whole uh, of of filmmaking, but uh, yeah, I, I wanted to look at every talk Fujimoto huh. movie. Last question, actually, two more, real quick. Movie that made you want to become a director? Oh, that made me want to become a director. Yeah, it might. I, weirdly enough, it was probably uh, the movie Kids. Uh, I mean, Kramer versus Kramer was the first movie that showed the power of cinema when we were little kids. But kids, I saw when I was 15 and I was in a scenario where there was whippets happening and it was I saw the scene on a VHS tape and it just felt like life bled onto the screen. And I was so curious about how that could be done. Yeah, it was I was going to go to school to be a physicist and then film in addition. Um, And I went to Josh said, oh, come over to Boston University and watch this watch. We're looking at the neorealist, the Italian neorealist. And I saw Il Posto and totally changed. Really? Yeah, I couldn't believe that you could do. And then, of course, then you dig deeper into that whole era. Of course, yeah. So mind-blowing. So this one's a more timely question with it being not only the end of the year, but the end of the decade. I'm sure you're seeing a lot of shows like mine and critics sharing their best films of the decade. Mm -hmm. Do you have one that immediately comes to mind as the best film of the 2010s? I mean, I mean, uh, that top 10 list was pretty good. Which one? The 2010 for the, it was for the Cahiers. Yeah, but I didn't end up sending it in. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Because I don't like to do the top 10, because there's, you see so much, um, I forgot what, what, what ended up reaching uh, pretty high. Do you remember what what I had on there when I sent it to you? And I was like, oh, should I send this? And then I ended up not sending it. There's so many. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to, because like, you of don't course. Really, you, you know, know the list in front of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? You want me to pull the list well, there was, up? There was we can fan, edit fan, it in. Phantom Thread was on there. Phantom Thread was yeah. way up on it there. It was on there? Yeah. 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 That Phantom, makes sense. Phantom Thread was way up on there. Let me just pull it up, because you can just oh, edit this in. The favorite, the favorite was on there. Okay. The favorite was way up yeah. there. All right. This was my... Uh, this was my top ten that I had that I that I never sent to the kayak. This is I'll an exclusive here. <laughs> an exclusive. Phantom Thread, uh, the favorite, Lanthimos, Margaret Lonergan, um, Beyond the Candelabra, Sodenberg, Under the Skin by Glazer, Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese, Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers, mm-hmm. The Act of Killing, Josh Oppenheimer, Bitter Lake by Adam Curtis, and Parasite by Bong Joon Ho. Those are. Some great choices. (laughs) I'm in lockstep with you on more than a few of those. Guys, this was a lot of fun. I encourage everyone out there to see the film if they get a chance. Thank you so much. Best of luck. Thank Thank you you. much. Appreciate it. You having a good time? Yes. This is me. This is how I win. My thanks again to the Safdie brothers. Uncut Gems, definitely a movie that left its mark on viewers and critics in 2019. Certainly our roundtable. You're going to pick up on that. The movie is going to come up a lot, and not just because one of the four of us has it in his or her top ten. And if you want to make sure you know what ten movies Josh singled out there, you can find that full list over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists or you can click on interviews and that will give you quick access to all of our Film Spotting 5 Q&As with guests over the past couple of years. 
Not any maybe huge surprises, some great choices you heard in there, but there was at least one, the movie Bitter Lake, which is an experimental documentary about the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia that was made by a U.K. documentarian, Adam Curtis, that I'd never heard of. So I'm glad they shared those with us. Well, and I thought I was finally past the shame of never having seen Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. I, really? I know that year it was just the, the hype was so intense about it. I didn't get to it. And then you kind of move on and watch yeah. other things. And now here it is back haunting me. Well, you remember, not to digress too much, but that time when it came out and then they had that whole issue with the release of the film and like they pulled it from theaters or whatever, and there was going to be that one critic screening that was almost even kind of off the radar. And I knew if I didn't go... There was no way you were going to see this movie in a theater. Yeah. And I did make it to that film. It was just outside of my top 10 that year. And whenever Margaret comes up, I get a little bit nervous because I realize that if we're going to talk about it in terms of best films of the decade, and I think it belongs Mm. in the conversation as well as Manchester by the Sea, then that makes me realize not only do I have to rewatch it, which seems harrowing, but am I going to watch the director's cut? Which is different than the one we saw in theaters, apparently. Significantly. I think significantly. Yeah, that's what and I, I don't too. know all the lore behind that, but I know it's different. I know it's longer. And it's a very, very good film, but a very, very tough watch. And more of that tough watch is one I'm not necessarily excited about, but Josh, I might just have to take the plunge as we do dive into the best of the decade, which is something we're going to do in the new year. If you do want to see Uncut Gems, it's out in a few cities right now. It opens nationwide, though, on Christmas day. Wouldn't say it's necessarily the most family-friendly Christmas movie, but if you need an escape, it's going to take you on its own disturbing trip. Just don't take the kids. Yeah. That is our show. We're going to wrap this one up. If you want to head over to filmspotting.net, you can check out the show archives where you'll find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current film spotting poll, which is asking you to choose your favorite Golden Brick finalist. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. To subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, head over to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. And to catch us on Twitter and Facebook, look for Adam as at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out this weekend, Bombshell, the look back at the fall of Roger Ailes at Fox, Charlize Theron in that film. Cats is out. Josh, are you going to see Cats? Well, I missed the screening of it, yeah. so I, I don't think it's going to be high on the priority You're list. Not going to bring the, the girls. Break. Not going to drag uh, Debbie out to cats. No, yeah. I, I, I can't promise I will. Probably not me either. And I've got a daughter obsessed with musical theater, but she's a little bit of a snob who isn't so sold on Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, she's above that. Oh, she thinks she is, <laughs> though. Of course, I did my due diligence, and she likes Jesus Christ Superstar, so we're fine. A Hidden Life, the new one from Terrence Malick, also out. That's a film, spoiler alert, you're going to hear a little bit more about on our end-of-the-year roundtable. It's a film definitely recommended by both myself and Josh. And, of course, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is out now. A film I think maybe we didn't have a very strong reaction to, weren't gushing about it, but, Josh, a film that we did both feel is a pretty worthy culmination to the trilogy and worth seeing. It did the job. It did the job. There you go. Of course, Uncut Gems also out on Christmas Day. Our top 10 of 2019 outlier show with Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson is coming up next week. And then after that, you'll hear part two, the consensus picks. And you'll have enough audio, we think, to get you through a drive across the country. Yeah. You're going from Chicago to Southern California. Yeah. 
You should be good. Here's your soundtrack. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Music this week comes from The Voids. More information is at JulianCasablancas.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So Rise of Skywalker, spoiler talk, and... I usually go dark when it comes to Star Wars news. I, I've been doing this going back to the prequels is just not try to read or learn anything, even see images. I just want yeah. to experience it like I did the original films as you. a kid. Um, but that leads to some surprises and shocks, especially, I think, with these last three. The main thing I'm curious about, Adam, spoiler-wise, coming out of this is are you satisfied with who Ray turned out to be? It's, it's kind of been the big tease since The Force Awakens, um, and we get a – a definitive answer mm-hmm. here. So was, but it kind of led me to more questions. Okay, but where did well, you land on it? Where I landed on it right now, I look forward to those questions because the ending is that maybe where you're going. The ending is a little bit ambiguous or opens up at least a kind of thematic question that we can maybe get into. But in terms of her identity, it is completely resolved. We find out that she is not, in fact, a Skywalker. She's also not necessarily of plain ancestry like it's suggested pretty strongly in The Last Jedi. In fact, she's not a Skywalker. She's a Palpatine. Yes. And maybe we all should have seen that coming because when the movie is called The Rise of Skywalker, it seems a little bit too on the nose and convenient if everything that seems obvious just plays out that way. You had to figure there was going to be a twist Mm -hmm. in here somewhere. Did I see it coming? No. Do I spend a lot of time thinking about this trilogy and getting into the minutia of it? No, I don't either. So I was surprised by it, and I thought it worked. I thought that whole concept, again, it gets back to what we talked about primarily during the review. He uses the word. I love Kylo Ren calling them a dyad. It sets up this dyad between good and evil, between Palpatine and Skywalker, representing good and evil, the force and the dark side of the force in the universe. And that connection between them isn't just that they see some of themselves in each other, that they're both troubled, that they have this sexual tension. It's not just that, that they are they are connected by ancestry in a way, that there is something in terms of the mythology that mm-hmm. connects them. And the idea then that they have to face off and they have to resolve that together, I thought really worked. And I thought that idea of that darkness in her coming through, again, something I said during the main review, you really get that sense that she could be accepting that this is her fate, that it is inside of her. So the fact that she's actually a Palpatine, that it's in her blood to be part of the most vile thing, the most vile creature in the universe, it was a pleasant surprise, I think. Yeah. What about you? I think it works. I I certainly agree with you. I prefer this than if she had been a Skywalker of some sort. Uh, But I I think it does raise some of the questions that immediately you have more questions once you get that answer, I guess. So it it doesn't feel as conclusive that way. So just the balance is great. I agree that works throughout the whole series, not just what's been set up in these three. But it's, you know, just silly stuff like, okay, so Sith have families. And if her parents, we see flashbacks to her parents and they're 
depicted as very good people. Like, yeah. how did they turn out so good if either her mother or father was raised by Palpatine? Yeah. I mean, I know these are she's things, the granddaughter of Palpatine. The, it's a pretty right. direct relationship. Then it's not just yeah. like because it, it is hinted at that they're good. It's hinted at that they very are, good. They fl- they they flee and protect her. Yeah. to keep her from him. Which again, this happened on the other side. It too. happens on the other so. side, but. I get the logic, but it, the resistance to it is that it does raise some of these questions that I guess I should just brush away and not worry about and appreciate the balance. Um, but it's yeah. hard not to think about it. I guess I wonder if you go back to The Phantom Menace and you think about Palpatine when he was just a senator or whatever he was. Yeah. And he hasn't yeah. fully risen to power That's yet. That's true. I mean – who knows what his relationships were? And I guess if it makes you think about it in those terms, there is a gray area there that isn't yeah. there with Han and Leia being a couple and giving birth to Ben. So what did you then make of that moment at the end of this film? We're back on Tatooine and Ray is confronted by someone who comes up and says no one has been here for a very long time. And she asks the question, where are you from or what's your what's your lineage? Yeah, who are you? Who are you? And she says that she's Ray Skywalker. After seeing Ghost Leia and Ghost Luke, yeah, looking at her, approaching, so that's clearly on her part more of a symbolic gesture. I, and did yeah. it work for you? I loved it actually. I thought it was really nice. I think it's crucial that you do see. Overall, I'm not a fan of the Ghost Jedi, but I think it's crucial you do see them because it becomes this story of adoption, um, which I think is pretty powerful. Actually, that someone going back to this question of lineage. And how you can choose to what is within your realm of choice Mm -hmm. when it comes to who you're going to be. What have you inherited? What are you going to live into? Yeah. And what are you going to reject? And this becomes the creation of a different sort of family where she has been adopted by them. And also, you know, another spoiler thing we should address is she's a surrogate somewhat now for Ben. You know, for Kylo Ren, who Absolutely. has who has died. Well, that's um, that's the other thing I did really like because that sense of sacrifice that comes through again in their final moments together. But also, the title then takes on that other meaning. Where for a second, the movie did trick me, and I thought that Ray was going to be the one who died. And that Ben was going to live. I thought they were really yeah. going to follow through in a crazy way, in a yeah. way that was going to really upend this whole they thing. Take, they take turns a lot. There's a they take turns, Romeo yeah. and Juliet thing going on there. There is. The but I thought, okay, the rise of Skywalker, what it is really is the redemption and the rise of Ben, who yes. is a Skywalker. Yes. Of course, right? He's Ben Solo, but he's a Skywalker because mm-hmm. he comes from Leia. And so the and thought also, that that was going to be the surprise. Yeah. but And then also her adoption into the Skywalker family. In those final moments, yes. you know, that she's she's taking on that identity. Exactly. So I thought that was pretty lovely. Yeah. And maybe just a couple of closing thoughts. I did get I'll say I got confused when we talk about the plot and some of the questions that maybe come up. I'm not sure I ever fully understood what the emperor's agenda was with her, because there's more than once that he says, I want her dead. And then it seems, well, no, he really always wanted her to kill him so that then she would assume the throne. And right. actually, when they have their showdown, he says, I always wanted you alive. It's like, OK, we just heard you a couple times say right. killer. Was it all part of some master plan where he was still sending Kylo after her, not thinking he would actually? I don't know. Did I you, agree. Did and you make sense of that? No. And there's also the complication where something that's 
always been part of this series is when not to give in to anger and not to strike in violence. And so she resists that at one point, um, which essentially gives time and leads to him being defeated. Yet he's still defeated by a ferocious act of violence. So what's the distinction between the first time when she puts her lightsaber away and says, I am not going to strike you down in order to allow your spirit and the spirit of the Sith to live in me. That's Mm -hmm. what he tells her would happen. Yet when Kylo Ren comes and they begin fighting his soldiers, she still kills him. Yes. With lightsabers. I know. So I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to get what the distinction is between maybe it's not in anger, but she looked pretty pissed. Yeah, she did. I I think the distinction probably has to lie or is supposed to lie in the fact that it's not her, but her and Ben. Okay. It's it's something about them joining together as family to Mm -hmm. try to defeat him because he even says something about that, says you have you have no family to rescue you like Luke did before. It was family that saved you before. You don't have that. Yeah. But again, you're right. I don't know what fundamentally is the difference between killing him with a lightsaber and then later trying to kill him with a lightsaber, just having some help. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but maybe we're we're missing something larger there. How about the fact that I know there was obviously a lot of really nasty, toxic stuff that was expressed by quote unquote fans about the Rose character. Mm, yeah, and she's back here and other aspects, and she's back here. But we also get the moment in the script where they go, hey, Rose, you, you coming with us on this big mission? You're going to be part of the group? And she goes, no, I got to stay here. A little awkward. Yeah. It's just I like the screenwriter's like, you know what? We're going to we're just going to keep you over here, Rose. Just maybe you'll pop up again once or twice. Later. I felt I, it was her choice, but I still felt kind of bad for her. <laughs> yeah. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.